Welcome to Food for Thought, a series of conversations shining a light on food topics that matter, more specifically, better for you food. In season two, our foundational themes are product development, sustainable protein, and manufacturing strategy. These three pillars will be the foundation for the guests we interview and learn from. On today's episode, we're discussing all things product development and manufacturing strategy with the inimitable co-founder of Midday Squares, Nick Saltarelli. Nick and his two co-founders, Leslie and Jake, are taking a bite out of the afternoon snack game with their innovative functional chocolate bars manufactured in Montreal. Nick, where does Food for Thought find you today? Whoa, what's doing, my man? Food for Thought finds me today. I think, you know, right before we got into this recording, you asked me a question, how's my day going? And... I'm having one of those days where it's not a bad day. I don't want it. It's a day where I'm realizing how hard the magnitude of what we're trying to achieve at Midday Squares is, uh, how, how under, how under, uh, how hard I underestimated it. That's the best way to put it. And even though I, I went in and estimated that this was going to be a crazy hard journey, I still came in extremely short. So that's, that's what's on my mind today. So let's just jump right into that because from the outside in, you know, Midday Squares, you guys are more than a company. You say Midday Squares is a vibe. You guys do things unconventionally. You're your unapologetic selves. Um, And you talk about here, just, you know, raw and open, how difficult that journey has been. But, you know, maybe to the more naive consumer outside, they might say, wow, you guys just look like you're having fun. I'm sure you're having a lot of fun, but take us through that sort of shift of, how hard it actually is, yet the amount of energy you guys bring day in, day out. Yeah. No, honestly, this goes back to, I've talked about it before on other podcasts. My dad passed away when I was 10, and there's this man named Rory Olson that came into my life uh, that was really a father figure, tried and true executive, led publicly traded companies, really taught me everything I needed to know, in my opinion, of the the real ins and outs of deal, deal making, dealing, fundraising, bringing together value. And one of the things he always said to me that's resonated is when you have momentum, don't ever fitting on anybody for doing that because, um, you know, like at the end of the day, everybody does what's best for them. But for us, we're just really excited to see what, what I, I just finished game of Thrones again for the third time last night. And at the end, uh, for anybody that doesn't listen, Aya Stark's one of the main characters. Jon Snow, who's another main character, looks at her and goes, you know, where are you going? She's like, I'm not going back north, which is where the home is. And she goes, well, where are you going to go if you don't go north? You're already south. She goes, well, what's west of Westeros? And he goes, I don't know. Nobody knows, but all the maps end there. And, and she's just like, well, that's where I'm going. And so for us, that's like, what's west of Westeros? What happens when you continue to run a company past the marker of when they usually sell? I love that. Yeah, that's a really uh, unique anecdote. So one of the themes that we want to unpack of season two for Food for Thought is manufacturing strategy. And Midday Squares, I think, is such a great case study for this because so many companies are moving to uh, contract manufacturing models. And from day one, uh, you know, the, the MDS team, uh, you've gone on a journey to build your chocolate manufacturing plant. And, you know, from the outside in and the, the videos that you've shared that are really cool, by the way, um, 
it's been, you know, a, frankly, an uphill battle by the looks of it. So take us back to the early days <laughs> of when you were raising money and, you know, saying, yeah, we want to build our own chocolate manufacturer. Or this, is a, this is a really important piece to conversate about. And so I think we're going to, I think there's a few ways that we can unpack this. For starters, um, so many, number one, okay, here's where I want to start. In this industry, I don't know why, but it's one of the only industries, I come from software. In software, you are, by investors, you are uh, reprimanded for outsourcing your core competency. So if you show up, and you want to build the next Facebook or the next Google, and you show up to an investor and say, hey, uh, we have this great idea. We've hired this contract software company, because there's tons of them, right, that can build software for you. Um, we are going to just be the face, the template of the, the business, but we're going we're gonna to outsource this idea of building Google or Facebook to this contract software development agency. You get left out of the room like by, by every single software investor. Part of their criteria for investing is um, what is your ability to create the technology? The founders absolutely, the founding team has to be part of that because of how hard it's going to be and that you can never outsource your core competency. Then I come into the food industry and it's completely different. And it's, it's actually mind-boggling that so many brands get away and, 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 and investors are actually pitching founders that they don't want to invest in infrastructure because it's too costly. So I think what's happened is over the years is you have investors chastising the idea of making a manufacturing plant. So founders are being like driven this noise in their ear and that nobody wants to take on the cost. So everybody goes out and outsources what I believe if we're in the food industry, then our core competency should be the fact that we manufacture our food. At the very least, that's what a company's core competency should be in the food industry. Um, and, and that's not true. We go out and we trust the most valuable part of our business to contract manufacturers that have an entirely different agenda of KPIs than you do internally. So that's, I don't, I don't have an answer to anything and I'm, not trying to get anywhere with that. I just wanted to throw that statement out to say how mind-boggling it was for me coming into this industry. Number two is, do you want to say anything on that? No, that you, I think you nailed it right on. Yeah. 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 So then number two is, I think because of the noise that's been developed in the industry, that a lot of our peers and other founders are intimidated by manufacturing and the idea of how to tackle manufacturing. And it's funny because I have a, a, a very close friend of mine that wanted to get into the coffee business through like the Nespresso pod um, uh, delivery mechanism. And it's, and, and it's the, not the first time that I speak with different food founders that everybody's first uh, intuition is to create a brand package and to go find a contract manufacturer. At no point did he think about, well, can I scale manufacturing based on demand? And the truth is very few people are gonna open their doors tomorrow with demand that's required from a third-party manufacturer. 
But if you go on Google and you start to type um, micro batch machinery or manual machinery um, for the exact product uh, area that you're going after, you start to find an incredible amount of super costly efficient tools to get you started as a manufacturer. And I think that is what we're trying to do at Midday Squares is take the approach of first principles thinking, which is what is the current demand that we have and how can we solve that with the resources uh, that we had? So if you go back to August 2018 when we launched, it was we needed a, I don't know, eight inch by eight inch pan, uh, handheld steam chocolate melter to be able to do our own tempering, um, a cutting uh, a knife, a small manual packaging sealer, and what else am I missing? No, and a rolling pin, okay? That total cost was, I don't know, three grand, four grand for the, for the entire like, process. Mm -hmm. um, and we started there with this idea that we have no clue how we're going to scale this. But first principles logic say if you, can, if you can make something manually in a pretty repetitive process, um, there's a high probability that you'll be able to automate it as you continue. And so just by like stopping the barrier to entry for us, it was very easy for us to wrap our head around what the next step was, always. And so as demand was increasing, it was pure logic and intuition that was driving what the next steps were. Okay, I remember at the beginning, uh, we had no idea. I think 60 bar capacity was like a big max for us in a day. And so as we were getting to the 60 bar capacity, my wife and I at night would talk about what we felt the forecast was for bars over the next three to six months. And then we would envision what would scaling look like. And so from simple things of, oh my God, if we just had a pan that was four times the size and a knife that was four times the size, that was perfectly calibrated for what we want, uh, we would be able to scale to those demands. And so that led us to the next step of thinking, which was, well, how do we do that? Who makes metal? Okay, welders. Let's start calling welders. Next thing you know, we're meeting with a welder and we're developing custom little tools. Now, those tools in no way is going to get us to automation. But at that point in time, it was allowing us to continue to build the revenue of the brand, the product market viability, and to show investors that there was something real here and that we were capable of continuing to try to build out the scale of how we would manufacture midday squares. And literally like Legos, we just kept on building. And fast forward to where we are today, we have a $3 million fully automated plant that can pump out 90,000 bars a day. If we would have attempted to do that out the gates, there's no chance we would have succeeded. Yeah, that's that's incredibly impressive in that short amount of time. So when going back, but it's then, not even about the impressive part, mate. It's it's <laughs> literally the baby steps. Yeah, it's that when my friend wanted to do his Nespresso business, I asked him, "Did you Google?" We did one Google, and we found an incredible little system for two thousand dollars to manually make your own Nespresso pods. 
versus going to a co-manufacturer that wanted a $50,000 minimum order. Yeah. So it seems we like need definitely... to build people's muscles. Yeah. And definitely seems like you're drawing on the concept of scaling with demand as opposed to your point of going to a co-man and saying, well, you need to do a hundred thousand unit run from day one when you don't even have a single order pending. Yeah. And then you don't even know the product yourselves. And then you're going to have people that tell you that's impossible. Every single co-man that we went to go see, because like everybody else, investors were telling us that we shouldn't have a manufacturing plant, that we actually started to believe that potentially we should find co-mans. Co-mans, this is what I've learned in the industry. Every machine company wants to sell you their off-the-shelf product. So they're going to tell you that what you want to make is impossible and that you should change this ingredient to this ingredient because this is more malleable. And every co-man is going to tell you what they want to make you streamlined on their machinery. Now, like I told you from the beginning, that is not in the best interest of your company, but it is in the best interest of, for the machine company that's trying to sell you machines or the co-man that's trying to get you your business. When we would leave co-manufacturers and we went to go see roughly 26 of them, Europe, US, and Canada, our bar always ended up looking like everything else that was on the shelves. And so you ask yourself why when you're at grocery store, everything is so undifferentiated. It's because 90% of people are showing up to the same commands and the commands are making sure that their square becomes their circle. And then next thing you know, you're in a product aisle where you all can taste the same. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's as good a breakdown as, as I've heard of it. And it sounds like when you were going to these companies early on, it was, you know, you're a round peg and they're trying to put you into a square hole um, from a yes, product format even perspective. The even the machine companies that were selling us our, our, our automated uh, machinery, they even tried to push how we made our product because it was in their best interest to sell us a product that was quick and easy for them to turn around versus not. You can figure out how to make this happen on our, on our term so that our product is midday squares. And, also, and if you push enough, you, you get it done. For sure. You've also mentioned, though, that how hard it is. So, you know, when you talk to young entrepreneurs who are, are bright eyed and say, oh, Nick, I want to do X, Y, Z, whether it's in food or not. What do you say to people? Because you know how rewarding it is, but you also know how difficult it is. And especially going the route that you guys are doing of totally creating a novel product as opposed to a me too type product with a different brand what is your message to those people? Because, you know, you obviously um, care about their well-being, but, um, you know, I've, I've had my own little bout of entrepreneurship, nothing compared to MDS, but I realized how hard it is. And just because you might be good at something in the corporate world doesn't mean all of a sudden you've got the chops to be an entrepreneur starting from scratch. What, you know, how do you, what do you say to people when they come to you and say, Hey, Nick, I want to do this. Well, A, always do it because the only way to train your entrepreneurial muscle is to do it a hundred million times. Um, so that's, that's, that's always first. I, I think everybody needs to do it and find out for themselves what it is. But two is that intelligence, and I'm someone that thrived in academia. Uh, so I, I'm not even like someone that didn't thrive in academia. Uh, intelligence has nothing to do with entrepreneurship. It's actually grit and perseverance that that's the number one requirement to succeed. 
because what you are going to embark on is nearly humanly impossible. What do I mean by that? You have to take on the emotionality of your teammates. Every person that you add on to your uh, team comes with their own baggage of, of human life. And you are responsible for that, whether you like it or not, as a founder. Um, number two is that you are the last person to ever get rewarded as a founder. Everybody's going to be on payroll before you. Everybody in terms of partnerships or vendors are going to get paid before you. Um, everybody's going to make money before you. So number two is like delayed gratification. Like if you cannot handle delayed gratification, you're going to crumble. There's just, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. And, and then lastly is stop putting your pressure on yourself of having to be perfect out the gates. And I think that's a really, 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 really big piece that I would say that my, my, my peers make in the first time that they do it, which I did too. I just got, the, I got my first real try at it at, at 17 and I've, it's been an iterative process for me since, but is, is this idea of we need to be ready for Costco out the gates and then this pressure of all these things that people put in front of them rather than um, scaling methodically, making sure that your product is iterating towards the consumer, making sure that you're batching out the magnitude of the problems in batches. Like, Midday Squares is a, I can literally name you all of the problems and hypotheses we were trying to solve in like batches. I can tell you August, 2018, we started in a condo. Could we get out with our bare hands and sell this product to people for money? Okay, check. And while we were in that period of, of work, there was no thought about the next step. And then once we proved that, we did it with one flavor and we did it because somebody who means a lot to me in terms of mentorship said, if you launch with three flavors, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. One's hard enough. And even though you're going to have all this opposition in front of you, um, of your retailers, it was so funny. He's like, your retailers and distributors are all not going to want to work with you because you have one skew, but one skew is what you need. You're going to have nobody wanting to work with you at the top at the top of the scale. And so it's going to be harder for you to get into stores. And he was absolutely 100% right. Uh, if you look at our first iteration of packaging and it, it, you know, there was a lot of things that are currently not on the packaging. Our recipes have changed considerably over time since we started. So this idea of perfection is just uh, completely false. And so I would really say is one, don't outsource your core competency unless you must do so. So, Mike, if you show up to me and you give me a product that can be made at a co-man, uh, I would tell you, okay, I get it. You're not reinventing the wheel. Maybe this is a viable option. Uh, I still would be weary because, I, again, I just don't trust outsourcing your core competency. But I would say, okay. Um, and then B is, is just is going for it. So many people just spend way too much time talking and planning. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that makes sense. Going back to the product development piece. So when you said, you know, does anyone actually care about this product? Was this something that you and Les had, you know, done up in your kitchen and thought 
man, how could we do this on a commercial scale? What was it that like you've created a novel product that it doesn't exist on the market outside of MDS, but what was it that actually created that in the first place? Yeah. So Les made that just, just regular old, she got really into plant-based. So we're, we're not vegans, but I would say 80% of our diet is, is plant-based. So she got really into 2016, maybe really into plant-based cooking. Um, and she was trying all sorts of new desserts. The idea for Midday Squares was really data-driven. It was uh, I was really close from with someone that that's super high up in the M&A community that's specifically tasked at the food and bev market, and uh, he was sharing me different reports every single year. And there was this one report that caught my eye of the real chocolate industry. Um, so real chocolate had to be cocoa mass of over fifty percent. You weren't allowed using palm kernel oils, so it had to be cocoa butter, cocoa. That needed to be over 50% of the product for it to be considered real chocolate. Um, and I mean, if you looked at the numbers, it was insane, the growth that was experiencing in this massively large market. And plant-based was still on a tear. And again, it wasn't even that novel of a product. It's that nobody wanted to give a shot at manufacturing bars a different way. And so you have all of these manufacturing plants that are just pumping out over and over and over that when I saw that report and I went to go look at the category, I'll tell you, it was very obvious that there was no such thing as this product that fit the gap of those two categories. And Les had already been making the product for two years. So we decided this is the way the steps work. Les and I decided we want to work together first. Second is we decided what industry we wanted to attempt to build a business in. Third was the idea for Midday Squares. So it was like, this is the category we want to be. Now we need to figure out how to commercialize it and how to re-spec it so that it's commercially viable, so that the price points make sense and that the macros make sense. And that's what we spent 2017 to 2018 doing. On the, on the topic of the price point, did you say, here's where we need to be and work backwards? Or did you say we need to build the best bar possible? It's going to come at a premium because we're using uh, non-GMO ingredients, organic, et cetera. And then the price was going to be a function of, well, this is the best product on the market. And here's what the price, how did it, was it a bottoms up or work backwards process? No, a, a hybrid. So it was definitely, we set the $3.99 price point first. Um, and then we worked our way backwards into it. And the reason why is that we had a restriction of ingredients we weren't going to use. And so we knew that the market did not have the buying power yet to bring the price down. And to be honest, we were fairly convinced that if we marketed the product properly and gave people enough of a vibe with it, that Honestly, it's not like cars. It's, it's, it's not the same thing. The difference between uh, a $20,000 car and a $100,000 car in terms of price scope is, is, is huge. The difference between $199 and $399 uh, to a consumer if they love a product is actually very minuscule, a lot less than people believe it to be. Now, the difference is, though, you have to take the... If you're going to take an approach of building a product at like post 60% gross margins, 
and then decide to be skinny with your marketing, it's never going to work. The, 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 if you're going to be an, a premium, let's call it like the market calls it price point market product, and you're achieving gross margins of 60%, you better delivering an incredible experience to a consumer in any way, shape or form. Um, and so what we do is we pass on that energy to uh, all of uh, all of our video and storytelling, you know, and that's that's it. That's a huge piece. So it was backwards from three ninety nine, and let's make the best possible product with the margin profile that allows us to be in business. That's a really great point. It's you know something I'm just thinking about. You know, midday squares as a team you're doing things that uh, two things I see that other companies aren't doing, which is separating you from the pack, but it's also got to be so difficult because one, you're actually manufacturing your own product. And two, a lot of companies, their contract manufacturing, they might outsource their branding or maybe they have somebody internal, but it's pretty minimal. You guys go above and beyond anything most people have seen in CPG or any other industry. And so I mean, that's a feather in your cap, but I mean, it, it, it's very impressive because you're doing two things that are over and above. It's not just, here's our, you know, functional chocolate bar. Uh, we hope you like it. And if you don't too bad, you guys are taking that and creating a whole aura and vibe and customer experience. When people open up the box and they see, you know, these pictures of you that are art in themselves and you personally hand, hand sign them all. I mean, I can speak to it as a, as a customer. I have lots of friends who have, and it's, it's, Honestly, I'm not saying that as you know somebody biased that's speaking to you on this podcast. It, it truly is something unique about MDS. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, and it's something that we work so hard on. Uh, I don't think everybody understands the magnitude of 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 how much love we put into it. We have a full in-house media production team. Like this year, we hired we hired a producer from television. We hired a producer that was uh, uh, filming a lot of the content you watch on uh, HGTV, Spike. Um, so we hired her away from traditional television. She, she came in as our producer of media. And so Midday Squares has really three functions. We have the manufacturing business, we have the media business, and then we have the actual like wholesale, typical brand business. Um, and so just in the content that goes out, Every day, we have a writer, producer, videographer, and editor. Those four people dedicated full-time at Midday Squares to telling the story through photography and storytelling. Um, that, that comes at a tremendous cost compared to our peers, you know? But we truthfully believe that the only difference between a, a real tribal brand and one that is just a nice packaging and sells in strong distribution channels is the ability to connect. And the amount of energy we dedicate to that is, is probably a, almost a, at a, a normal level. Definitely. One other thing that I think is really unique about MDS is you guys open the kimono on your manufacturing on business meetings that you have and conversations where people are being very raw and vulnerable. These are all conversations and things that are typically behind closed doors. Is this, you know, part of your ethos as your three co-founders? Is this like, what is it that attracts? I mean, a, you've got to have employees that want to be all in on something like this and be willing to, you know, be opening up to their manager about something and it being put on camera. But to the outside world, I mean, it's this vulnerability and authenticity that draws 
you know, your consumers towards you because we, you know, we feel like we have a connection with you as opposed to just being a, a chocolate bar that we see in a store. Yeah, dude, you said it perfectly. And it's exactly that. I think a lot of people want, love the idea of vulnerability. Very few people are willing to actually do it. And so Jake really pioneered this idea that, well, how are we going to differentiate ourselves? There's no doubt that you're going to see a replicated midday squares on the market shortly. I, I would assume, right? Someone's going to do it. Uh, the top five companies have more money than us. They have more R&D than us. They have more employees than us. They have bigger manufacturing plants than us. Uh, what is the one thing that nobody will be able to compete with us on uh, is the connection that we try to have between Jake, Les, and Nick and every single person that interacts with the brand. So early on, it was like, okay, the original thesis was, why do we idolize and celebritize certain people? And when you started, when we started to really look into it, it was the ability to be part of their lives. Like some of the 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 the, the most sought after celebrities today are not even, like I said, the old school that they were actors or anything. They were just people that opened up their lives to the world and allowed people to be part of their journeys. And the appetite that you saw in the ratings for Shark Tank and any type of entrepreneurial show has been through the roof. I mean, we speak, we've actually, you know, we've been pitched by two networks for a reality show and to see the numbers um, that, that, that's happened in that industry, the appetite's massive. And Jake was right. This was his hypothesis was that if we open up the curtains completely and real, really open up the curtains, you know, trying to say this can go out, this can't, um, we should be able to build a really, really, really committed audience. And he was right, man, by, by opening up that kimono, we've been able to build an audience where people and and truthfully, we like we say it, you know, you know, hit us up in our DMs or whatever. Is that our goal? Is that when you buy midday squares at a, at a store, is that you're buying from Leslie Jake or, or 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 Nick? Like you know these people, right? Not just a brand. It's oh yeah, I know the people that that founded that company, and and that's super important because that's where the intimacy comes. But then the problem is, is if you're going to do that, you actually have to double down on intimacy. So we have to create infrastructure at midday squares that allows for the fan base to communicate with us at scale. And that requires a lot of energy from us too, where we have to schedule, like if you're going to walk the walk, you have to walk the walk. And so, you know, we're never going to stop scaling the handwritten notes. We're and, and it's becoming absurd, but we'll, we'll never stop. We'll continuously figure out a way to scale that. We're never going to stop interacting with our fans via, video on dms i'll never not answer a phone call or a text message or a dm um it's just how do we continue to scale that and we're super committed to scaling that yeah i I really appreciate that that's that's great insight i have uh about four questions left nick as i want to be respectful i'm game for you man i'm game along the way who have been some role models or mentors, whether that's personal or just people you look up to from afar. You've mentioned Rory. Um, are there any others? Yeah. Oh, so, so many. Um, books for me are my mentors. I, I, instead of shining it on just one person, I, I speak about this a lot. I've introduced Jake to this idea that books can be mentors. Uh, I think 
as we grow older and we find and we define who we are as people, sometimes we feel alienated and alone um, because maybe our friend circles change, people that we get to meet on a day-to-day -day basis in our local communities aren't in the thought process that we're in. Um, and, and sometimes like the best mentors don't need to speak back to you. I think, okay, so I think advice is overrated in this day and age. So noise in your ear as an entrepreneur is actually, I've seen it be detrimental to a lot, especially in technology and food where founders for some reason early on go and they like surround themselves with these advisory boards and all this stuff that I think is great, but I think the noise becomes confusing for them. I think they're pulled in a lot of different directions and they, they're not building their internal compass to listen to their intuition. So I think advice is a, is a double-sided sword and, 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 and to be used very, very, very strategically when and how. For me, what I love about books is I get to pick and choose the people that have done it, the people that I don't have access to. We're talking the top 1% of the world in anything. They'll, they don't even know I exist, but I get to follow in their footsteps. So everyone from Walt Disney, Steve Jobs, uh, Shamat from uh, Facebook, um, to, 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 to philosophers, you name it. I, I, if it's interesting, I like reading it. And everything I've learned comes from that. And so whenever I'm struggling with something, I just try to go and find the best person in the world. Uh, at that thing, and then I, I buy a book, hopefully that they've written, and if not, I find the next best person who's written a book, and I, and I just kind of, I, I think once I was listening, and again, this is where you, uh, I was listening to Naval Ravikant, and he was probably the first person in my life that gave me permission to not have to read a book front to end, and to use it like you do in high school when you're or, or university when you're doing a research paper you literally scan through books to find what you need to mm -hmm. uh, cement your your argument or thesis for any of those things um, and that's the way i use books today and so like all of my mentors are in the forms of books i love that point i uh i couldn't agree more and i'm somebody who's at times struggled to think oh how am i going to get through this whole book but um, the best readers I know are, ins are insistent upon you. It's not a cover to cover. Maybe some people read books backwards. They, you know, find certain, they'll go on Goodreads, find certain quotes, go find those in the book, get what they need and, and, and move on. So I think that's great. Advice. Yeah. Like you use it like an encyclopedia. And then two, what I could say, I've read the Steve Jobs book three times now. Um, each time has had an entirely different outcome for me in terms of meeting and because uh, I was at different points in my life. Mm -hmm. so like I, it wasn't the same book ever so that was pretty fascinating as well too what's next for mbs is it distribution in other countries is it new flavors is it capital ipo what do you, what's next for you guys i think i think it's all of that we're on a relentless mission and i really mean this and i think you know i really mean this it's not just our mission statement it's like we believe that we can create the next nike we believe that everybody that's tried to create a company as at the, the magnitude of Nike keeps on coming at from the same way that Nike come from it by making shoes or apparel. Um, and we just don't believe that, that, that the next Nike of the world will necessarily be in the form of shoes and apparel as, as a starting point. Um, you know, for us, it's, it's, it's how do we continue to scale a brand that really makes people feel something? 
Uh, we believe like less is more. So we're not entirely obsessive about new SKUs, new SKUs, new SKUs. Um, we, we, we think that, you know, with our current SKU count and, and obviously there's innovation in, in the standpoint, but like we're not obsessively chasing SKUs for revenue. There's a pretty clear path to how we get to 100 million without SKU growth. And so it's about optimate, op, sorry, operational excellence, I think is, is, is what the next two to three years stand for. And financing is just financing. So we will continue to grow the business at, at, at hyperscale and continue to access financing however we need to access it, whether it's through private markets or IPO markets. Um, and obviously, if we don't want to sell to another company and we have venture capitalists that uh, are invested in our company, then at some point we have to create a form of liquidity to, to make them make money. And so I think it's pretty inevitable that an IPO will happen if and when that happens. I love it. Um, final two questions. If for those that haven't tried Midday Squares, where's the best place for them to find you guys online or in store? So yeah, just middaysquares.com. Go use our retail finder. It's one of my, we built it in-house, our retail finder. I'm obsessive about how fast we can get customers to find the product where it's closest for them to shop it. And if there's nowhere you know, we, there's no benefit for you to buy from us on our website versus in store. So we always try to push consumers to, if they want to buy it in their stores, great. And if there's no store near you, then middaysquares.com. We ship all over North America and deliveries in uh, door to door in less than 48 hours. I can attest to the 48 hour window. So kudos. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so final question. You're someone who lives and breathes food all day, every day. What's your favorite way to reconnect with food on a personal level when the business of food sometimes gets in the way? Hmm. I'm relentlessly obsessed with flavor discovery. And so I, I'm, my, my, my funnest times uh, is, is to buy obscure items that from all over the world, um, and I use different sites to do that. And even if it, you know, is paying um, uh, ridiculous prices on shipping, is is there's something so magical for me about flavor discovery of trying textures and and just experiences in the mouth. Everything from what a, how a temperature increases or decreases, you know, the flavor component. What texture? How do a dab of crunch here or not. I'm just like, I'm a fan of food. I don't know how else to explain it. Then like my diehard curiosity is what drives my excitement to continue when it gets too much at midday squares. It's just like, just my obsession of, of what's out there and, and experiences in your mouth that can be had is, is like what keeps me in the game uh, in a personal level. And like to the point where, you know, we're, when we're out, and we're eating something, you know, I'll look at my wife, we're in the middle of dinner, and it's like, yo, do you feel the way that's happening, or how, how when you're done the, 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 the chewing process, that flavor becomes, um, like, hey, so for instance, the other day, this is like something, I had, what did I eat? I had coffee, and then, I can't remember, I had a, I had something Sorry, no, not coffee. I, I had something, a mixture of two things, and I'm blanking on it right now, that created this magical taste of coffee in my mouth. And I was like fascinated. 
by how those two things came together and created that flavor profile in my mouth. And so why that's interesting is that in an area of where we're trying to achieve stuff without natural flavors, we, we really try to do it without natural flavors and artificial flavors. And the reason why we stay away from them is not even from like the whole standpoint of the ingredient deck is that it takes away the fun of food development when you're just relying on natural flavors because it's too easy that. And so, um, yeah, uh, the, the obsession of flavor discovery is something that keeps me stimulated uh, outside midday squares always. I love that. Nick, this has been a real pleasure. I got so many notes here, but three things I just want to highlight in summary. One, you know, your point about intelligence has nothing to do with becoming a, a great entrepreneur. Um, we have a clear path to 100 million in, without skew growth. Sometimes the best mentors don't actually need to speak to you. Um, and lastly, don't outsource your core competency. That's just a tidbit. But I mean, you know, I really appreciate you just opening up and sharing all these uh, insights. I, I think a lot of people can are going to... Can I do like one last thing that I'm yeah. just like relentless crusade for? Let's do it. Is there are rules to life outside of law and people really need to start thinking that way. There is no rules. Everything that you think is a rule is a preconceived bias that was built into you from, from your, your childhood. Um, and so you really need to start untangling the, anybody. Just start untangling what you believe to be truths versus biases. And once you start to like get past that, you're going to start to see the world in a really wild, wacky place. Words to live by right there. Nick Saltarelli is the co-founder of Midday Squares and was gracious enough to join us from his hometown in Montreal. Thanks, Nick.